Edgar. Hi, Edgar. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Uh, not bad, you know. It's almost the end of the week, so I'm looking forward to my weekend. I'm fine. What are we going to talk about today, Edgar? I don't know, as <laughs> it's, it is usually <laughs> the case. <laughs> And just like, you know, it's important for people to understand, we have recorded the content long ago, meaning like one week ago? No, <laughs> two <laughs> No, three weeks three ago, weeks probably. A month ago. Yeah. A month ago. So, yes, I don't have my notes in front of me. I never do. But I do. But And he I does. can tell you that we are going to have a discussion on how to keep the psychoanalyst alive. So, it's not the field, but the person who is yes. doing the, <laughs> the work. Yeah, we can identify pretty much with yes. the subject of mm -hmm. today's episode so we are going to address some questions like how do we keep a sense of purpose how do we manage uh, life expectations we are going to wonder how do we keep not feeling depleted we are going to talk about the question of our location and uh, the convenience of where we work Oh, inconvenience. Mm -hmm. And um, again, as usual, I would really engage our listeners to think about what uh, we talk about mm -hmm. and offer some suggestions because I do think it is a very important topic. Yeah. We're talking about we as individuals. Yeah, we as humans. Doing the work of psychoanalysis. So... Yeah. If we don't exist, this analysis doesn't exist. It's pretty much yeah. the situation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So the postcard was interesting today. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. And uh, my name is Gregoire Pierre. This is Edgar Francisco Danielsen. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. bring up another question mm -hmm. on the symbolic standpoint how do we keep the psychoanalyst alive the clinician alive yes that's a good question but we go back to what does it mean to be alive it's not only the heartbeat as you say yeah <laughs> as i said off uh, <laughs> before the recording before the recording yes. said, it's symbolic don't look for that in the recording it was not there yeah let me think What makes you tick, you know? What makes me tick? I think we touched a little bit on this uh, in our prior podcast. 
the sense of purpose that brings some satisfaction mm-hmm. uh, sense that we care about someone outside who we who we are <laughs> and those are as we were saying narcissistic needs that does not imply anything negative about them it says that we as anyone else who have needs so i would start there i would start with the idea that the analyst becomes fully alive when there is an alignment between what they do in the room and their internal sense of satisfaction and purpose in in life what to say in a different way there's nothing more dreadful than doing something that one hates doing if it happens in other fields i would expect that to happen in analysis as well meaning someone who is doing something they don't want to do that would be dreadful you probably don't train and become an analyst not wanting to but i can see how at some point you're bored mm-hmm. and you just perform being an analyst you're bored or you're tired yes depending on how many patients you have but becoming for many of them the container of their own anxieties and fears and trying to process one after the other could be an exhausting experience could be <laughs> unless you become I'm sorry uh, unless you become numb could be <laughs> uh, unless you become numb and then it does not <laughs> impact you in any way which would be of course a, a way but then you're not alive no that you're not alive you, well m- maybe you are i mean you're not lively you're and not a lively <laughs> <laughs> analyst no. if you're numb no if you're too numb i mean you can't be completely oversensitive you're raising a, a point here that i am um, Of course, I don't think there's statistics about that. You don't go to a room full of analysts and say, how many of you are bored? Bored to death. (laughs) (laughs) We usually don't do that. Well, maybe we should. But if people get bored in other professions, why not as an analyst? Uh, We're not special in that sense. But, of course, I don't know if that's have been studied, researched. Or written about, maybe. How I became bored. Yeah. That's a great title for for a paper. (laughs) Yeah, well, anybody can steal it from me. Yes, uh, do you want to write a paper? You can use this title. Yeah. How I became bored with... So sense of purpose and sense that you're doing something that extends beyond who you are. I'm going to jump on what you mentioned just earlier is that you probably need not to be too tired. Mm -hmm. And what does that uh, mean? It means that... uh, Oh, you have something uh, to say. So that... (laughs) I have so so many answers. That's a rhetorical (laughs) device. No, it was a rhetorical rhetorical question. What does that mean? So let me continue. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I have in mind right now is that you have to balance your life. Not all analysts have children, but when they do, and when the children are young, it's very difficult to maintain a balance, to not be Mm -hmm. too tired. You know, you have to sleep enough. And I would say, if you're a psychoanalyst, you might want to be a not-too-bad parent. So you might want to spend some time with your Mm. kids. Yes. So you're seeing patients, then you're seeing your kids. And you want to sleep enough because then you want to be available to both your patients and your kids. If you do that, mm-hmm. 
how much time do you have to read, to write, to teach, to participate in conferences? Not much. You see, everybody who works with kids will have to find, uh, are going to be struggling. And analysts are no exceptions. No. And it's difficult to maintain a vitality if you have other, so many demanding things in your life yeah. next to your work. And why would you need vitality? Well, I think you need vitality because that's what will keep the analyst and the analysis alive in the room. So offers some examples that are not necessarily connected to parenthood. For example, in some institutes, ours being one of those, classes are at 7 p.m., 9 p.m. And sometimes there are case presentations at 9 p.m. Mm. And some of them are quite fascinating, but who is alive <laughs> or lively at 9 to 10.30? So it's a demand that sometimes takes away energy that we could use elsewhere, meaning in the work with the patients. We have limited energy, and that's another example. Now, if you're a parent and you're taking a class at 9 p.m., that's a worse situation, I, I would say, of course. Talking about the energy, if you need to balance your budget by having more patients, can take something away from you. Not can, it well, will. Well, you know, if you're very young, sometimes people can manage better. But it does take You cannot do that for too long. So decreasing the caseload implies decreasing your financial income. So are you going to struggle financially or are you going to struggle <laughs> with physical energy so which one do you want i remember that in france when you are a clinician you are granted some time so you are paid and still you're allowed to have i, I guess like four four hours maybe a week oh, wow. to study that's quite meaningful i guess that's what we yeah. would need but it's psychologists to work in an mm -hmm. institution not in private practice in private practice it's you're on your own Uh, even in France. Mm -hmm. But yes, this idea that we have physical constraints, we have social constraints, mm -hmm. and we have professional constraints. Yeah. We're not just free-floating agents who, uh, well, you have a limited yes. amount of time and energy, and you need Outside money. Outside money and physical energy. other thing that I think are important is the possibility of being around other people, other analysts. And of course, mm -hmm. that connects to conferences and, you know, taking classes or study groups, so on and so forth. I used to find it very refreshing when you and I had offices in the same building. Sometimes yeah. it was just a hello or sit down in the office of the other and talk for a few minutes. That was refreshing. That was an opportunity to participate in the life of another analyst. We don't have that right now, unfortunately. Well, who I left? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope you feel guilty. I am guilty. not feeling guilty. <laughs> That you can't sleep at <laughs> I'm night. I'm not feeling guilty. <laughs> I, I moved. <laughs> and, but, but uh, you moved on yes, from me. But <laughs> let it be clear to the audience, I am just one block away. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> but here, you, it's, you I find it interesting. My style is to leave the door of my office open so that if anyone is around, other colleagues 
even if they are not psychoanalysts, you know, but human beings <laughs> uh, walking in this suite, sometimes they say hello. I don't see that happening that often. People get to their offices and close the doors. I'm not sure what it means. I don't know. Yeah. I'm among those. Close the door? No. <laughs> close the door, yeah. And I think, at least consciously, I do so first because I don't know people the way I knew you and mm -hmm. Peter anymore in, on the floor. And also because, well, usually I have patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like patient comes, patient leaves. I close the door between two patients. I rest mm -hmm. in the bed, next patient, yeah. etc. I hear know. that, yeah. When there's no more patients, I'm, I just leave. Yeah, I go that home. makes sense. But sometimes I have an hour in between and I could open the door. Yeah. I'm guessing you work later than I do. I have a very condensed You uh, go home schedule. earlier, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. True. How to not feel depleted as a practitioner? How do you think we could keep our curiosity and desire to practice? I find it very energizing sitting down with colleagues, let it be a study group or a peer group, we used to have a very active peer group and then life happened. Peter died and now we are working on Zoom and things like that. But I find it very energizing. I have looking for that sense of aliveness. I did a study group in the summer. I did a study group in the fall. And I think I will continue to do that. It doesn't have to be that complicated you know you gather four or five people go on zoom and talk about cases or about any subject that feels particularly interesting and i find that energizing and that has to be taken from uh, what would otherwise be personal time correct there's a cost to it there's a cost yes you can't just extend so you create a community being in analysis or supervision does that count Yes, I went through two different analyses and they were transformative and, you know, they took a lot of time from me and energy. So I was happy that I went through those two analyses and the results, that the transformations in my life and in personal life, my career, so on. That was important to me. Supervisory groups or peer groups, I find more animated and energizing. You know, being an analysant is a lot of work. It requires a lot of effort to do one's own analysis. So it takes a toll on your energy level, I would say. But supervision, supervisory groups, uh, peer groups are easier to manage. Really? It's funny because to me it's the other way around. Tell me. I found that being in analysis is very easy Mm -hmm. In a sense of not necessarily what you find, but the process. This idea that you can let go and try to associate. And, mm -hmm. like, you know, sometimes you, you feel like you hook on the feeling on something and then you start digging. And if you have to work to make it come, mm, I mean, at least that's my stand. Mm -hmm. uh, something might be off. Yeah. You know? While supervision, like, this is work. Like people talk and you really have to focus and be like, okay, what does it mean? And mm. or when you talk about your own patients, you're like, okay, so that, just like, like how I feel, I, what I bring, you know, it's then this is it takes energy to me more. Oh, that's an interesting thing. 
Yes, the frame offers what some people call the freedom of the couch. You lie down, if, if you are lying down, and you talk as freely as you can. That's freedom. But for me, the effort is notable. While in being in a peer group or in a supervisory experience, I don't feel the demand, perhaps. Are you just lazy in supervision? Like, you just like, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. <laughs> uh, you what are you telling us, Edgar? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. You are, I think you're touching something here that you and I have completely different experiences. Yeah. The way you paint it is different as how I experience mm -hmm. it. But yeah. do you feel like in in your own analysis you explore? Because that's a term that comes back so frequently. Uh -huh. To me, it seems mm. very foreign. I don't feel like I'm exploring anything. Mm. I'm just uh, lying on the couch and Talking. things come up. Sometimes mm. it's completely mundane. And then I'm like, oh, it reminds me of this. And sometimes I hook uh -huh. on something and it feels right and I mm -hmm. I feel like I couldn't like, oh yeah I've always thought that but I couldn't remember it but most of the time it's it's just like yeah well this was uh, I did this I did that uh, I felt like this I felt like that but I don't ex maybe that's what you mean by exploring I think what I mean by exploring is that I am talking as freely as I can and then I begin to notice the arc of the associations. So something is there. Sometimes I do it, sometimes my analyst would do it. Have you noticed that you are moving from this to this other subject and there seems to be some connection here? So that's what I call exploration because it makes me think, why am I connecting these two things, whatever they are? What my mind is connected A with D instead of going from A to B and then C. The moment that I become aware that that is happening, then I'm curious about why it is happening, what's there, what's behind the movement. And that perhaps is what I call exploration. Now, what becomes a difficult part, and I think it's also what I experience with my analysis is that it's uncomfortable the moment you discover that what is behind is something that is perhaps not so nice. You are not so nice as you thought. And <laughs> well, yeah. when we say you, I'm not referring to Gregoire. We all know how nice you <laughs> well, are. Yeah, you know I'm uh, very nice. Yes. I'm but a pure uh, <laughs> spirit. <laughs> yes, you are. Made of light. Yeah. So encountering the dark spaces in the inner world and shining light there is uncomfortable. I don't think that experience is sublime, you know. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> and I, but it's insightful and it's transformative. I remember, just to give a little tidbit, when I was in France years ago, I think now it's been probably, probably something like 20 years. Mm -hmm. I was in analysis and I was complaining like saying like something along the line that but I, I don't understand I'm such a nice guy <laughs> I was I was I was younger <laughs> and naive I was younger and naive <laughs> <laughs> and then my analyst said but you're not a nice guy <laughs> <laughs> I was so shocked <laughs> 
There you go. Don't you think that that is difficult to swallow? That's difficult to take well, in. <laughs> it took me some time, <laughs> but but eventually I was like, yeah, I'm not. It's okay. I can live with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So with the moment, that resolution of okay, yeah, I'm an asshole, and <laughs> I mean sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm. You see, like this, I'm a nice guy. Like I'm this, like I'm nice, and it's other people's fault. And like, no, no, you you, you can be nice in some at some point in some moments and mm-hmm. but you're not a nice guy as like it's your identity <laughs> like what are you talking about mm. you insane young adult <laughs> should i tell myself now <laughs> no, that's, that's what no. i'm referring about the energy invested in that process can be can consume a lot of your the energy that you have for but it's necessary. Absolutely. And that's why I did it. I went for analysis twice and years of those too. And I think they paid off in terms of my own understanding and also how I work with my patients and being more at ease with ambiguity and contradiction. Yeah. And with my aggression. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. And I would say that to be in analysis, to be in supervision, maybe as we mentioned before, trying to write, trying to read. Mm. We created the podcast. Yes. This keeps us in a position of uncertainty. My 20-year-old self thought he was a good guy. Uh-huh. Thank God mm. I learned I was not a good guy. Mm-hmm. I could not have been a good clinician. Yeah. If I had thought of myself as a good guy, it would have completely transformed the way I listened to my patients, the way I would respond to them, what I would, ways or another require of them, require of myself, see the world, you know? So I think all those work to keep the, the psychoanalyst alive. Well, you need a whole structure around the analyst. And to keep the analyst alive, you need also to keep the analysis alive in the room. And to do that, you need to maintain yourself in a space of fragile equilibrium. Can you explain what do you mean by fragile equilibrium? I mean that you have to rely on some things, that you have to be able to trust some of the things you learned, but you can't trust them on a much too stable way. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, you can't Some just fluidity, flexibility, yes. movement. Yeah. It's a balance. It's moving. It's mm-hmm. fragile. It, it's not just so fixated. Mm-hmm. Freud said that in the interpretation of dreams. Here it is until the end of time. I'm not going to be curious. I'm not going to question. That's the way it is. Mm-hmm. My patients are going to fit to it. I'm going to fit to it, mm-hmm. you see? Yeah. Like this, you need to maintain that. But, And I'm jumping around, but I think really it goes back to the first podcast we uh, recorded. You really need to think about your fees because you need, absolutely need on the short, middle or long run to find a financial balance. Yeah. You can't mm-hmm. just accumulate patience on the low fee mm-hmm. except if you have tremendous wealth outside and you don't really care about the money 
mm-hmm. but if you make a living and you use the money you make as a clinician to live, then you absolutely need to really think about the determination of your fees to be able mm-hmm. to create a community, to be in analysis, to be in supervision, to have some time to write, mm-hmm. to read, to create. Yeah. Otherwise, you are going to be overwhelmed by work. Yeah. And then it was a joke at the beginning of the podcast, but you're just going to be a pulse. Like you're there sitting, your heart is beating. But as a human, you won't be able to listen. Not because you are a poor clinician, because you're a bad person, whatever. Because we have physiological limitations. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you're going to drug yourself, drink coffee over coffee over coffee. Mm-hmm. That's not good. You are wired, but you are not necessarily present. You oh, s- that's a good point. Yeah, you're And then on the other hand, I think some substances attenuate the possibility of listening to the patient. If you are taking a medication for the allergies, let's say that a situation and then you're feeling drowsy, all of that impacts the experience of attuning to your patient. Now, are you going to have allergies and not take the medication? You will have to make decisions about that. Well, you mentioned coffee as a way that some people Mm -hmm. keep themselves, quote unquote, alive. But I said they are wired, but they are not present. So they feel Mm -hmm. some sort of internal push. But I wonder if they are able to attune themselves. Oh, the lack of coffee makes it more difficult to attune. I don't know. Each person is different. But every person should think about it. We all need to think what it means to us. Things as simple as at what time in the morning I'm going to start seeing patients. If I am a morning person or not. At what time of the day I'm going to finish seeing patients. I remember Peter saying that he didn't want to see patients in the morning because it would be a disservice to them. Exactly. So I think that's, that was very honest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know that if I passed 6, 630, 6.30, I become a little bit resentful that I ha- I'm in the office still. In, in, oh, I'm, not, I'm 5 p.m. I'm uh, toasted. Exactly. I'm done. <laughs> you are done. So I, I have blocks during the day that I keep with no patience so that I can rest a little bit. But even with that, if I need to go to 7, 7.30, for me, that's tough. And I would be resentful. And therefore, I don't do it. I don't do it. Because it would be, uh, like Peter used to say, a disservice to the patient. I think that's what you used to say, but that's the idea. Mm -hmm. Last point, maybe, is so to keep the psychoanalyst alive and to keep psychoanalysis alive in the room, I would like to bring up the question of where we practice. Is working from home killing our connection to psychoanalysis? Let me ask another question. How working in a personal space influences our connection and perception of our work. Are we dismissing too much for convenience? I have said before that convenience is not part of the psychoanalytic attitude. The psychoanalytic attitude has other features, but convenience is not one of them. So we don't do things for convenience. Maybe we do sometimes. What I mean is, yes, we do things because they are convenient. 
but I don't think we have done a psychoanalytic exploration, to use the word again, of what it means that something is convenient. That's what I mean. So l there is a openness to what the patient says. There's been a lot of has been written about that. Is working from home or working from the office is one option more akin to keep psychoanalysis alive? Okay. Because when you're home, you're in your environment, you're around your some things that are very familiar to you. So could that influence and actually deprive the quality of your work and actually also make you feel less alive in some ways? That's why I came back to the office even though the city was empty. The experience of familiarity in my house was making me feel that I was in, in a tiny bubble. The way I, it was happening to me, because I was in that bubble, time stopped. So I am 15 minutes into a session and I feel that it's three hours. So how do you imagine my inner experience would be? I'm with this patient and I feel that we've been talking for three hours. I'm already tired. So coming back to taking walking and taking the train and coming to an office and uh, help me get out of the bubble. I was seeing my patients on Zoom still. But then my experience of time began to shift again, and I was able to be fully present again. And that's something, I mean, you're just mentioning it on the side, but physical activity is important. Yes. Because mm -hmm. we are sitting on the chair all day. All day, you know. Yeah, I mean, I remember that when I first went back to the office, I felt tired going there. Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh, shoot, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so out of shape. Out of shape. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, I'm sh certain that uh, the answer can be different depending on the person. But I feel like once you have an office, you can feel the difference between being in an office and mm -hmm. Maybe if you never have an office. And it has happened to people who got their licenses during COVID. Yeah, maybe you don't really understand what you're, or you don't have the experience of what you're missing, so mm -hmm. you don't experience it as much as we did. Mm -hmm. But yeah, to have the office, it feeds me. Mm -hmm. I have to say, from my experience today, is that I stay home twice a week. Yes. And I go to the office three times a week. Yeah, exactly what I'm doing. Yes. And I find the fact that I alternate places mm -hmm. very much lively. I find it very energizing. Yeah. Because there is also something that can be deadly about just going to the office, going to the office, going to the office mm -hmm. all the time. And, and for so many hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to be able to experience psychoanalysis differently, regularly, mm. to me, is helping. I'm still sensitive to the question of, are we dismissing too much from convenience? Because it is so easy in every kind of work, but especially when you're supposed to know like psychoanalyst, to say like, oh, it's more practical and it's good for me, so don't question it. I'm very interested in what we lose and what we gain in any kind of situation. Yes. And there is certainly something to be sensitive to in the way we perceive our practice in terms of, is it too much? Am I transforming the frame so much that I'm starting to lose things that are useful 
for my patients. Yeah, I don't know what would that be, what we'll gain or lose. No, that's a question that would be answered individually. Then on the other side of the equation are the patients. And there are patients who, in fact, won't meet with me remotely. And when we explore that, it's that the distance is too much and they get distracted. So they, they don't want to see you remotely. They don't want to. They want to be in the room with me. And that has become clear to me that some patients need their bodies and my body in the room, that something happens there. And for other people, it's okay being remote. And then, of course, I question myself, don't know, don't know the answer to this question. Am I more supportive if I am remote? Meaning, you know, that you fall into supportive therapy. I know I was doing it while we were in the height of the pandemic, of course, we needed support. But I wonder if, if that same patient in the room would be something different, would be more analytical. If we could go back another hour on that subject, but I think from what we've discussed before, what comes back frequently is that it could be analytical more easily. Mm -hmm. Having people online can easily move into some kind of easy support. Yes. Because to be in analysis online or on the phone requires, from my experience, much more energy on my part. Same with me, yes. Than when the patient is yeah. uh, in the room. Mm -hmm. And as we said before, it might be a different experience, not dramatically different necessarily, but a different experience when you're a patient mm -hmm. because the fantasy is different. But as an analyst, the way we listen, yeah. Suddenly when someone is in the room, it's usually easier. It's easier for me, yeah. This is it for today? Yes. I think what we discussed was energizing. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. We raised some uh, down-to-earth questions. Mm -hmm. And um, we need to struggle with that. Mm -hmm. And not just struggle. We certainly need to find some uh, always temporary, but still some solutions. Mm -hmm. oh, I like that the word temporary. Yeah, yeah it's temporary because mm -hmm. then the solution won't last forever. But no. we can't just tire ourselves out and just work and without considering how to last on the long run mm -hmm. and many people are doing it already many people are offering uh, conferences uh, newspapers etc and mm -hmm. it's certainly part of uh, that topic but everybody should at some point be involved in something yeah i think this is it for today thank you for listening to us and uh, see you in a month Okay, bye-bye.